0: Oh, bitchin'. Is this in 3D?
1: No, but your face is.
0: Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long.
1: And I am Cole Rolland. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 134 today and we are back to Erica's choice. What are we talking about today?
0: I thought Valley Girl seemed like a totally bitchin' way to kick off the summer. (laughs) Like, don't you agree?
1: I totally agree.
0: It is from 1983, directed by Martha Coolidge, with Nicolas Cage, Deborah Foreman, Michelle Mayrink, Elizabeth Daly, or E.G. Daly, Cameron Dye, Michael Bowen, Colleen Camp, and Frederick Forrest. It's a story loosely based on Romeo and Juliet, about a valley girl and a punk guy from Hollywood falling in love.
1: Now this is two Nicolas Cage vehicles in a row that you've chosen. Are you just going to keep going until we get to Snake Eyes and that Left Behind movie?
0: Oh my gosh, can we? Let's just do a whole year of that. I do have him in my Ants in the Pants. That's our year-end wrap-up. This is all early Nicolas Cage too, which is pretty wonderful, though. Does he ever give a bad performance? But anyway, I had seen Valley Girl a few times before we went to see it together on the big screen. There was a super fun series that Austin Film Society and a local radio station co-op had done together, Music on Film. And that night turned out to be really special. The house was packed and the audience was all ages and they were totally into it, which was kind of surprising to me. But maybe once we get into the film, it won't seem so surprising that everybody loved it. So are you ready to get started? Absolutely. We kick off with this totally rad helicopter shot from the Hollywood Hills and the Hollywood sign going into the valley. And this is all about mall consumption. Everything is incredibly bright. As we go through the credits here, and then we get our valley speak or Val speak immediately. I think my favorite example of that is his brains are bad news. So as we kick off the film, establishing where we are, I wanted to talk about this larger concept of the Valley Girl in pop culture.
1: The Valley Girl is possibly one of the most 80s of all pop culture phenomenon. And when I watch this now, I wonder, is some of this lost on a younger audience or people that are just now coming to it for the first time?
0: I think a little bit of that is lost, though I definitely still see that way of speaking with us. It's just evolved a little bit. And I can tell you, watching the film even today, it makes me want to go back to my own vowel speak, which I was definitely guilty of using throughout my life. I stopped using the word like as a discourse marker when I met you.
1: Yeah, because I made you put a quarter in the jar every time you did it. And (laughs)
0: And we got to $12 million and I had to stop.
1: No, it's funny that you bring that up, because that's actually how the whole thing started. It all came about because of the Frank Zappa song from 1982. He wrote this clever little ditty, mocking and policing the way a certain subset of young women from California spoke. At best, that song is about two minutes longer than it needs to be, really. You get the idea in about the first 30 seconds, and then it goes on for five minutes.
0: I still have no memory of that song. I was going to link to it in the show post. But it was also his daughter, Moon Unit Zappa, who was 14 at the time, who did the song with him.
1: To me, it's one of those great instances where a piece of art, once it leaves its creator's hands, completely takes on a life of its own, regardless of what they intended.
0: Because it's supposed to be a parody. It's supposed to be really a takedown. But... Did it, along with some other things though, spawn something much larger that people actually love in its own right? And if nothing else, it brought Grody to the max and (laughs) gag me with a spoon into our lives.
1: Yeah, he went to all the trouble to write, record, and release a song entirely to be a dick to 14-year-old girls. And its greatest effect was to proliferate vowel speak farther and faster than it ever could or would have without his help.
0: There was another big monument to this culture around the time that made a big impact on me, I don't know about you, and that was the TV show Square Pegs. Oh, yeah. I watched that. I watched it regularly. It ran from 82 to 83, and Tracy Nelson on the show was the person who did speak. She said, though, that she was doing it long before that, but you put those two things together and it seemed like it was all over America.
1: Yeah, Valley Girls were a nationwide phenomenon. I remember human interest stories on our local news around about the same time that we had our first mall opening, and this became Zappa's only top 40 hit, the thing that he is most likely most remembered for by the culture at large. He bemoaned being pigeonholed as a novelty artist because of it, but, you know, boo-hoo, pick on someone your own size next time. And then there was a lot of talk about what a savage critique it was of consumer culture, but Zappa had no problem setting up licensing deals for clothing, for cosmetics, for dolls, all under the Valley Girl banner. Zappa was a little self-important for my taste. I appreciate some of the music, obviously, but he had a very high opinion of himself. And he said terrible things about what was just an innocent group of young girls trying to have a good time. At one point in an interview, calling them disgusting. He also filed a copyright infringement suit to get the film stopped, but that didn't work. And then the film, it became something completely divorced from the song. It wasn't mocking the culture the way the song was. In fact, it studiously avoided any one-dimensional airhead stereotypes. And as I get older, I'm sure I laughed at that at 12 years old, and maybe times in between now and then. But as I get farther away from all this, and this goes for all kinds of things, dialects like this become like music from different time periods it has its own rhythm and there's a real charm to it
0: well back to the film we've got our pack of girls these friends and they're on the beach checking out dudes talking about this big epic party that's going to be happening and we meet our romantic lead randy and his friend we're setting up this culture clash because they're from hollywood
1: which is not as obvious when you're in your bathing suit. Those costumes get dispensed with, and so... Yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm glad they have that scene. Especially with Nicolas Cage's crazy shaved chest in the V. <laughs> 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 That's the thing I probably remembered most from watching this as a little kid. But we start to see a bigger example of this as we go back to Julie, and she's getting ready for this party with her friend. And they're talking about the rest of their friend group, especially Lauren, who is the one who's more sexually aggressive, or at least talks more about it. And we also meet her parents, Colleen Camp and Frederick Forrest, the cool parents, talking about how things were so much wilder when they were younger in the 60s. And then this big set piece, kind of a central set piece for the film, where we meet all of these characters and get to know them a little bit better. At this big blowout party, and personally, I never went to a big forbidden party like that, even though it's not exactly forbidden, because parents are there.
1: Right, and they are running the buffet.
0: They are. Serving
1: ants on a log, do you think?
0: That's exactly what it looked like, plus sushi, and also sexy stepmom trying to cockblock her own stepdaughter. So there's that odd bit of competition, but the biggest and most important scene for me... The thing that says so much about what Martha Coolidge was trying to do here is when Lauren gets the moves put on her by Tommy, who is Julie's ex-boyfriend.
1: We shouldn't mention ex-boyfriend by about 15 minutes when this happens.
0: Yeah, very soon. I, like, totally don't love you anymore is what (laughs) she has said. But they're in a bedroom. He's gotten her down to her bra. She's asking, what about Julie? She's not totally putting him off. But the biggest question that she asks him is, does this mean that we're going to be going together if we have sex? That's implied. Not for him. It's not. And he basically threatens to slut shame her at this point. The moment that I love here is Elizabeth Daly saying, get out as he's already left. So here's where we come to what for me is kind of the biggest question of this episode, the thing that I'm most interested in. I think we get so many different representations of female sexuality in this film. And that's really a hallmark of Martha Coolidge's work and that gender awareness as well, even though she didn't write the script. It reminds you a lot of another favorite of mine, Heather's, and how it portrays what women feel versus how they're perceived and what's expected of them. How do all of these representations strike you?
1: I really like what she does with all of this. Julie has a great deal of autonomy and she exercises it, especially compared to other teen comedy protagonists. In a lot of those other films, I feel like the characters are just swept along by tropes and lazy plot contrivances, which is what made them completely unrelatable to me. But in this, just as one example that you've already mentioned, Julie gives Tommy the gate. From the beginning, she is in control of things. And it's fun to see them doing the things that you referred to. She and her friends checking out guys, being vocal about it, engaging directly with their own impulses and comparing their experiences. There's the appropriate amount of confusion and curiosity that inexperienced young people are going to have reasonably. But the important part is that they're not afraid of it, and there's not some artificial double standard that's applied to their conversations versus the boys' conversations. So watching that, how does this reflect your conversations with your friends at that age about this stuff? Was it relatable in terms of autonomy, sexual confidence, peer pressure, all those things?
0: It feels very relatable. In fact, I remember the first time I did stay out all night. It was my dad waiting for me, not to chastise me, but to tell me, your mom's really worried about you, so let's figure out how to manage this. And I definitely remember talking with friends about experience and everybody sort of being at a different place in their lives. And more than anything, which I love to see here, is this idea of being excited about it liking it because it is fun, which is why, again, that moment with Lauren makes me feel something really deeply. This idea that she wants to actually have a real connection. And why is it terrible to then also have sex with that connection?
1: Yeah, EG Daly is freaking adorable, first of all. And this scene all by itself, this vaults her up to, in my opinion, equally as interesting and important as Julie in this whole thing. And one of the things that's most interesting about that, I think, is the dynamics of the group and the potential it has to influence decision making. That's all something I'm very curious what you think about here. There is typically a hierarchy to friends groups like this. Everyone has a space that they occupy. Does she strike you as the one? You say that she's typically more aggressive about that stuff. Is that an attention-seeking behavior Is she the one that usually doesn't get as much attention in the group? Does that make her more susceptible to Tommy's bullshit when he's paying specific attention to her? The dynamics that influence all of this stuff, I really am curious what you think about.
0: I think she is such a complex character, and I don't fully know the answer to that question because I think about how much some of this might be rumor- And how clearly sometimes in your own groups in real life, when you blossom a little bit earlier than others, there's this perception again, thrust upon you, you must be this person who is ready to go, even though emotionally, you're still at the age that you are. I like that she's trying to at least be liberated and open to possibilities, maybe in a way that others aren't. And she gets kind of penalized for that by men, but she still doesn't let that stand, which I really like. And speaking of complexity, that's why I like Julie's character so much too, because there's that part that comes with this adventurousness for her. That maybe at the same time, she doesn't want the problems that come along with it.
1: Well, I think the influence that friends have on each other, especially at this age, is crucial to your development. In a lot of cases, your peer group is everything. They... Certainly right above your parents, probably teachers too. So I love the exploration of how expanding that group affects Julie. For example, later, Randy tells her that health food is cool. Her parents' store is cool. So far in her life, her narrow frame of reference is taken exclusively from her social circle. So it's fun to see her reacting to new influences and how she incorporates those ideas and begins to grow. And that also is played out in the way that the movie treats parents. I think that's really interesting, too. It gives them the extra layers that it gives the young people. And like you mentioned, I love her parents so much. It does definitely outline the way that there are clearly different priorities for these generations. But her folks don't have to be off prank Zappa about it.
0: Julie's mom, Sarah, grew up in those wilder times, like I mentioned. And she's still a young woman, still excited. And then... We've got that incredibly interesting character of Beth, played by Lee Purcell here, who is Susie's stepmom. And she's had this guardian role thrust upon her while she's still much more interested in her own sexual life and happy to bring some teenage boys into that mix.
1: Yeah, the hot mom thing is something different altogether compared to the rest of the parent subsets in this. I think her and this implied predation may be the most exploitation touch that still remains in the picture after Martha Coolidge changed a whole bunch of things. That was definitely a huge theme then, too. 80s sex comedies were rife with the older woman, younger man trope. You've got private lessons, my tutor, class, homework. Sylvia Christel built a whole empire on that post-Emmanuel, basically. These being more enlightened quote-unquote times, though, how does this play for you now?
0: It makes me really feel for Susie, in one respect, because she really just wants a mom. And I feel terribly about the whole situation. It seems wrong on a number of levels.
1: But you weren't a 17-year-old boy in 1983.
0: That's true. And I guess the age is kind of key here, too, pushing him slightly older, above the age of consent. It's interesting, too, that that whole idea came back around in the American Pie series
1: to be fair, I don't think that idea is ever going to go away. Got it. But back to the more age-appropriate partnership here. When Julie and Randy first meet at the party, he approaches her, but I really like that she's the more direct one of the two. She straight up asks, what are you doing here? And then after getting thrown out, he sneaks back in through the window to wait for her in the shower. And when they finally meet and have time alone together, I love the way She reacts to him, how she can't mask how glad she is that he's come back and he's at her service here. What will we do together? I don't care anything. This is such a great scene. And this is where the film really stakes out the territory that it's different from its contemporaries. She's unsure, but excited. He gets to exhibit a tenderness and a thoughtfulness that's uncommon to the genre. She won't let it go. She implores her friend, do this for me. It's equitable, and no one is trying to be too cool about it or above the thing.
0: And how many of us would turn down when somebody says, let's get out of here? I mean, that just sounds like the most fun ever. And the big adventure is they're going into Hollywood, getting out of the valley, heading into a club. By the way, this whole section in Hollywood at the beginning, it really does feel like the opening to Vice Squad. I was
1: thinking the same thing.
0: (laughs) I think it's probably the same footage. And when we get into the club... This is when the music really starts to come alive for me. So I wanted to ask you a big question here before we talk about the music as a whole. Does it matter that the music is not punk rock?
1: It's a little weird for me and people like me to watch on that count. Probably it's definitely a case of I don't think that word means what you think it means. But as punks, we learned a long time ago not to get our hopes up in terms of any sort of scene being accurately represented. So seldom do they get punk rock right in the movies. The band we get the most of is the Plimsouls, for instance, who I really like. But this is definitely more of a new wave scene if I have to classify it. This was around the time of the germs and fear. But Randy's favorite song to blast as they're driving down Hollywood Boulevard in the convertible it sounds more like John Parr or Benny Mardone's to me. In the Valley, I guess that must pass for pretty intense, so everything is relative, basically.
0: And Stacy does nothing but bitch about the music <laughs> the whole time, so it's too tough for her. Do you have a favorite song from the soundtrack? I'm going to say mine is the Plim Soul song.
1: I would probably say the same thing. I've been a Peter Case fan for as long as I can remember, but it's such an iconic use of I Melt With You that it's hard to argue against that one.
0: I just feel like that one's totally overplayed. It's in a Hershey's ad.
1: Now it is, but in 1983, it was not.
0: I feel like I've heard it probably every other day my entire life since then. Would you but rather I listen have... to more radio.
1: <laughs> Would you rather have Life in a Northern Town instead?
0: Oh my God, I love that song. <laughs> okay, I almost started singing it, but I won't. But anyway, that's Modern English. There's also The Clash, Culture Club, Bananarama, and The Jam. They're in the end credits. Electric Avenue is another song that I remember really well from the time. But Martha Coolidge really spent a lot of time and effort on the music. A huge chunk of the really small budget just went to getting licensing. She was only paid $5,000, by the way, because she said she spent years in clubs getting to know music for a film that never actually got made So, she wanted to bring the music here to bring something more emotional and vigorous to the story. She says, Music is the soul and the heartbeat of a film. It says so much more than what the actors of the scene can say alone. So, back in the club, even though the music is so loud, they are really connecting. What I love is that he tells her what he feels. And she's confiding to this connection that she feels, and I completely believe it. Because, you know, we talked about chemistry in the last episode in Rolling Thunder. What do you think about their chemistry here?
1: I think it's great. And the thing that I like most is how much they seem to make each other happy. I don't feel like in contemporary romantic comedies that the protagonists look at each other this much. Is that just my imagination? Because I don't watch a ton of them.
0: I don't think it's your imagination, and what I'm struck by so often nowadays is this idea of, why do these people even like each other?
1: Yeah, the chemistry here is so pure. Deborah Foreman said she still keeps a poem that Nick Cage wrote to her in character in a scrapbook. And this chemistry actually extends beyond the main characters and their romance, the camaraderie and the bonding that happened during this production. It reminds me of a film that is about 180 degrees from this picture, but it still has that positive effect on the overall outcome. Over the Edge had a similar thing, where everyone stayed together, spent all this time together, made mixtapes for each other. So all of this connection and that scrappy underdog nature of the production, it meant that a true connection really was formed, I feel like. And it does my heart good to hear those kinds of stories. It's not a necessity, but I certainly enjoy those instances where the nature and circumstances of the work are as fun and fulfilling as the work itself. And it really shows in this. And I know a good actor can convey those feelings, but a lot of these performers were just kids, not seasoned actors. So when you can see that connection in their faces, it kind of does a lot of the heavy lifting.
0: Well, Nicolas Cage said he had this enormous crush on Debra Forman, so Who there was didn't? practically no acting. Absolutely. And I said this about Linda Haynes and the Rolling Thunder episode that she could have chemistry with a lampshade, and I think that's true of Nicolas Cage as well. Yeah, Deborah Foreman is just so easy to like. She's so gentle and charming. And of Nicolas Cage, Deborah Foreman said that he started to really kind of scare her during filming because he was bringing up very real feelings for her in her. She was attracted and intrigued and caught up and he had great eyes.
1: And you see it too in the parental bond, not even in the romantic bonds. I enjoy this scene so much when she's confiding in her dad, Frederick Forrest. He leaves room for her to explore what she's feeling and all these complications. He gives her an example from his past so that she can actually relate it to him. I like how she says, I know all about that stuff. In that very teen way that you know she doesn't know all about that stuff, but you still have faith in her, so he doesn't interfere. The question I have about this scene, though, why do you think it was important for this to be a conversation with dad instead of either mom or both of the parents?
0: That's something that I can personally very much relate to. Maybe that is a trope, but this idea of a father-daughter bond being something that's very real. It's something that I've always felt.
1: I know my sister and my dad are like that too, for sure.
0: So I really like here that because this is a woman's story in a certain aspect, we have all of these increasingly positive reflections of men in her life. I think it's really important to not make her character vulnerable in that way to just the slickest person that comes along. It's the ability to give her agency that you talked about earlier. We get a really fun scene next. This is the student driving that they're doing where they're not paying attention to the road at <laughs> all in order to talk to each other, including turning fully around to talk to the friends in the back seat. We've got our favorite Les Nessman is the driving instructor.
1: Richard Sanders is so funny in this scene, especially when ultimately he just bails out of the car while it's still in motion. There's so many neat, fun little details about this That don't necessarily have to do with the conflict or the romance. Just the peripheral things are so fun to look at now. His cameo is a great thing. I really love the cash register in the very opening scene. It has about nine buttons on it. The design, the actual physical design of the credit card being swiped. These are the sorts of details that Ty West would eat his heart out to be able to incorporate into the films he's making today.
0: There's another detail that I love in general here, and this is something that Martha Coolidge also brought to the production, and that is some diversity. There was this idea that the valley was all white and it wasn't, and we see those different faces of color reflected, especially in the party, which is really fun to see. It feels more realistic. It's certainly something that I could relate to. So talking again about these kind of low expectations we might have had for this sort of genre, Especially as Roger Ebert said, it was a genre inspired by porkies, essentially, (laughs) that in contrast to all these sex-mad teenager movies, this film was actually convincing and depicting kids in love. And very importantly, doesn't try to get laughs by insulting or embarrassing teenage girls. And he definitely mentioned Martha Coolidge's influence in this aspect. He loved that everybody was in the same boat, the boys and the girls. They're trying to do the right thing and still have a good time. And the last thing that he said here that stuck with me is that even from a movie called Valley Girl, the kids in the movie are human. I certainly feel that. I think you do as well.
1: Absolutely. In lesser hands, I think this could have been overly simple and broad. I'm sure it was conceived that way. But with Coolidge at the helm, though, it takes young women seriously but it still lets them revel in their goofiness and their awkwardness. It recognizes them as a whole person that way, and it doesn't come down on them for it. Even E.G. Daly's character, who fools around with her friend's boyfriend, she isn't ostracized and she doesn't bear unduly harsh criticism or scrutiny for what could be perceived as a pretty egregious bit of boundary crossing. It gives them all kinds of room to be complex, to be joyful, and to make mistakes.
0: In terms of feeling true or recognizable, it reminds me of another film we talked about. This is one you brought to me, and that's Gregory's Girl.
1: I still and will likely always favor Gregory's Girl above all teen comedies. To me, it is the absolute top of the heap. But I would still call this a close cousin. This is a little more slick and commercial a product, if only for the way it uses music, for instance. Gregory's Girl captured that awkward time in both form and function, I feel like. But the best thing that they share in common is an honest sweetness. It makes me think, teen films, I don't know that they're sweet and hopeful this way anymore. Has the window for that closed? To do something like this now, would it seem uncomplicated in a way that modern kids couldn't relate to?
0: I really hope that window hasn't closed because I think there's always a way for young people at any age, at any time. To see honest representations of themselves that also have some aspiration to them to do something better. To be themselves, but keep trying to be a little bit better than maybe their baser instincts. To have some positive role models. To see good parents. To see good friends. To see the possibility for love. So we might not be giving young people enough credit in terms of what they're able to watch, and I'm certainly not a consumer of that kind of entertainment now, so I don't really know what's on the landscape.
1: Well, I know a remake of this is, and I don't have high hopes for that. It could turn out to be great, but I have serious reservations about it. Some things I feel like should just be left alone. The other thing that this shares with Gregory's Girl you made me think of is an accuracy in its overall depiction of teen-sized lives. A lot of movies don't get that scale right. John Hughes films... Can't hardly wait, super bad. Throughout the decades, even the good ones feel off on one account. And it's a counterpart to something you said. They're aspirational, but not in the characters. They're aspirational in the writers, I feel like. They're distorted. This is a teen story through an adult's eyes. Especially the way the parties are portrayed, for instance, like you mentioned. These parties that are a centerpiece of a lot of these movies. Maybe it's just where we grew up, but I didn't go to any either. So the best of these things, they actually feel kid-sized, not adult-sized, trying to shoehorn their sensibilities into a 16-year-old's life.
0: And going back for just a second to Heidi Hollicker, who played Stacy, Julie's friend, she talks about how they all felt that they were incredibly present for this film, which is why it still seems authentic and honest. And that Martha Coolidge had such a complete vision that they had such a short shooting time, but a little bit of rehearsal. So they knew what they were supposed to be doing. And the characters were fleshed out. And they had great chemistry together and all that time spent together that you had mentioned. That it just all works in a really special way. So we're still in those... Giddy moments of falling in love. Randy comes to the health food store and says once again, let's get out of here. And we've got that great montage of going out, making out, in front of the Romeo and Juliet sign. So do you think the film does effectively portray young love? Which we probably answered, but I wanted to hear if you had other thoughts.
1: I do have other thoughts. And I mean this in the nicest way, and I'm even referring to myself, obviously, Thinking back to those years, relatively kids don't know much based on experience, but they're trying and they're operating so much on instinct. That's just the nature of things at that age. One of the drawbacks of that is that it makes it so easy for someone to exploit an advantage, either a potential romantic partner, someone in your friend group. It could be having even slightly more experience with a thing or knowing a certain piece of information that not everyone else knows. For instance, Julie's friends think they are doing her a favor, intervening on Tommy's behalf, discouraging her interest in Randy. And she is doing her best, and she addresses it with everyone that's important to her. But the audience can see that she has made the wrong decision, obviously, and her friends are just teeing her up for Tommy to manipulate her again. I say she addresses it with everyone that matters. Randy is on the outside of this decision-making process, unfortunately. He is blindsided by this. And it's one of those things that I think does play into that. Does this portray teen romance effectively? She is very necessarily staking out her own space. And some of that includes making difficult decisions. So the film really nails that mercurial nature of those things. When he comes to her door, who is she mad at? Because he's not doing anything different from the day before when she was just fine with this behavior. It's a very realistic portrayal of the way your heart betrays your head and vice versa at that age.
0: The same for me. I think that emotion and excitement and uncertainty are captured. And especially for those young people who are trying to figure out who they are and what they stand for. And that's why it seems like Randy just shines through here. He's never afraid to speak his truth. And I think Martha Coolidge said something Really appropriate as well that the film is not about marriage. It's about love and growing up and differentiating enough to love.
1: And it's eternal, right? This goes all the way back to this source material that it's loosely based on. The power of this, the lasting appeal, is that it's addressing this eternal divide. Townies and college kids, the other side of the tracks, Romeo and Juliet, like the Marquis says.
0: And in Romeo and Juliet, it's Romeo who's the one who had just broken up with somebody moments before and then falls in love seconds later with Juliet. In
1: 1983, I understood the broad strokes of all that. Being in a small town in Oklahoma at the time, what I didn't specifically fully get was the valley and the significance of that. I knew based on what the movie was telling me was that I was definitely more a Hollywood guy based on these partygoers and the music. I probably wouldn't want to go to the Valley either. I'm probably more of a Fred than a Randy. I, though, definitely would have been one of these weirdo party crashers. They don't fit in. They fight. They get tossed. But not before Randy is smitten with Julie, obviously. In the same way that I say sometimes that horror is a conservative genre, this whole thing strikes me that way too. Both sides of this are very conservative in a sense. Fred says she's not one of ours. So players on both sides are working to maintain that divide, to preserve the status quo. So in addition to navigating young love, which is already turbulent enough on its own, they also have to struggle against everyone who wants things to stay the comfortable way they always have been. They're both on the outside of their comfort zone with this. But of the two, I have a question for you. Does she have more growing to do? And I say that based solely on the perception that hers is the more bland, sheltered existence, right Does it come across that way to you?
0: I think they both definitely have growing to do, but yes, I agree. I think she's the one who needs to get outside a little bit more.
1: Because punks are passionate, right? Which inclines them to be natural-born romantics, and certainly new wavers are with those big ruffly collars. Comparing the two, I think Randy just has more access to exotic venues, or at least he avails himself of them. That phrase I keep thinking about, the other side of the tracks, it typically connotes one-way movement to me, the good girl crossing over to the more dangerous side. Often there's not mobility available in the other direction. There are other forces in play that would keep you in your place if you were from that side. One of the things I love about this though is the way that it's presented that it's equitable in each direction. There's mobility for each of them to enter into the other's universe. There's trepidation on both parts, and you can definitely see that in Julie and Stacy's faces when they go out for this joyride. But both sides are feeling out these boundaries and trying to figure out how all of this fits into their world. My friends will freak, Stacy says, if anyone finds out about this. You don't have places like this club in the valley, I guess.
0: We go normal places with new clothes.
1: <laughs> It's an amazing time, though, when you're breaking out of your shell and you're confronting these ideas that you feel like might be for you. You don't know yet, but you need to try them on. And the way that the film handles this idea is one of the things that I think it does best. When Julie asks Randy, one of my favorite things, what does it take to be so free? Her delivery is the perfect mix of genuine inquisitiveness about this and also gently poking him To show that she understands that at least a little bit of what he's doing is adolescent bravado. The important part, though, is that she innately knows and communicates to the audience that there is a way to make all this real. That's already intoxicating enough. And you add hormones to that and it's a freight train, basically. Maybe I just respond to it because this is my type. I had a big crush on her, like I said. Michelle Mayrink, too. Same thing. Smart girls are where it's at. And you'll get more of that in my recommendations.
0: Well, actually, you just saying the status quo and the people interested in maintaining it brings me to my next question. So Hollywood definitely had a code of its own. The producers required, required Martha Coolidge to show female breasts at least four times in order to make the movie as appealing to young men as young women. Now, she found a lot of loopholes around this, which I will get into, How do you feel about that requirement and then how she set about making that happen? You being one of the uh, young men referred to.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right that it began as true exploitation material. It's a drag to think about there being a quota of nudity that she had to meet to get or keep a job. I am all for sex and nudity in cinema, in all art for that matter. But this banal commodification of it and making it fit into your spreadsheet with so many instances is just lame. And this is one area that's never equitable. Do you think that James Ivory had to sign off on making sure there were four dongs in a room with a view? I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) But Martha Coolidge, she brilliantly turned this producer's plan against them as much as she could. Like everything else in the movie, it feels absolutely real. She minimized the amount of time that the shots took up. And more importantly, there's nothing pandering about the way she frames the scene. It's clearly a case of the director seeing the potential in the material that no one else does.
0: Because she said they didn't say how long the shots were supposed to be, which was not smart of them. And they didn't care how it was supposed to be done. They just wanted to see them and they shook hands on it. And she says that once she showed them the finished film, they said, oh, It's a real movie and we're delighted about it and no longer thought about, did we actually see it four times? Which, by the way, they saw maybe three in a frame of a fourth and it's not presented as titillation. And even as a young person, when I did pay attention to those sorts of things, I never came away from it remembering the breasts. So I think she succeeded.
1: Yeah. And that whole, it turned out to be a real movie thing. The budget was pennies compared to the high profile teen comedies of the time but I think this is where Coolidge really shows her strengths. Every single penny and then some ends up on the screen. You can see all of it. It made its money back on the opening weekend. It turned out to be about as far from Porky's as you could get, fortunately. It has a universality, that timelessness of the Romeo and Juliet thing. It's obviously not as lofty, but you can't exactly call it a low comedy. That conjures up something with the vulgarity and coarseness of a Porky's. Fast Times at Ridgemont High maybe has a little bit more of that than this does, yet it still transcends that at the same time. If this is not low comedy, then how would you characterize it?
0: I think of it more of anything as sort of a spirited romance. I don't think about the comedy as much, even though I do laugh a number of times. And there's a lot of drama here, but more than anything, it's that spirit of love and its ups and downs with just that daring sense of adventure. So we've moved on now to this really difficult breakup. Julia's made her decision. She's breaking up with Randy, bowing to this peer pressure from her friends. And this is one of the key scenes that Martha Coolidge insisted on adding to the script, along with them falling in love. Her big contributions. How do you think those sequences added to the film?
1: I can't conceive of the film without them. Those things are the heart of the film. What would it have been without that? Shopping?
0: Yeah, I think it was really just this idea of the valley girls and the friends and the consumer culture. And she came into it determined to make it real, as she said. Working with the screenwriters to make the story about romance and peer pressure and conformity versus individuality.
1: Being a teenager is not about outrageous situations in real life. It's about not knowing what you're doing, but hopefully having a blast while you're figuring it out. There will be trials and tribulations, obviously, but it's a lot more interesting to me to see Deborah Foreman be given room and time to work it out instead of montages and peeping in the girl's shower, and then all wrapped up with some saccharine bit of wisdom delivered at just the right time with just the right song on the soundtrack. It's a very fine line to walk, which I guess is why the list of great teen comedies is so short, in my opinion.
0: And she said she felt those scenes were really necessary because from old movies, you get this idea that the most important thing you can play is wanting the electricity, the eye contact, as you mentioned, how much they look at each other. And she wanted for Randy and Julie to have that great desire and electricity together.
1: And you really feel it. You feel like Randy is heartbroken. You see him acting out. In this state, he's bound to make mistakes, but he doesn't give up on her. He keeps showing up where she is, providing us with arguably the funniest line in the whole film, the one we did with the opening scene. Totally. But I completely believe with all of this, even with him showing up and being funny, that it's ripped his heart out.
0: Evidently, the important piece of direction that Martha Coolidge gave Nicolas Cage there, because they were all really struggling with the scene, is you are hurt, but not defeated. And he says that he's carried that with him, even in other work. And Deborah Foreman talked about having a really hard time, too, that she didn't actually want to be breaking up with him, which I think you can see. She didn't want to go there. She didn't want to predestine herself. And then without those scenes, it would just be sort of examining the culture, but less about the people and what they feel. And Nicolas Cage definitely shines in this scene. It was his improvisation to mix the profanity, and the valley girl slang when he's yelling at her. And he said that he thinks this is one of his best films. Do you agree?
1: There are two major pulls of the Nicolas Cage experience. There's the extreme ends of the spectrum that are the completely outrageous and then the completely sincere. And this is absolutely one of the best performances at the sincere end of things. I would throw Moonstruck in there and Birdie too, which I think is one of the most underrated films of the 80s.
0: For Birdie, I guess he prepared by wearing bandages on his head for a long time. For Valley Girl, he slept in his car during the whole shoot.
1: Well, even sleeping in his car, he took that direction to heart. Because echoing the earlier scene, Randy and Fred decide to crash the prom like they crashed the party. He is down, but he is not defeated. And then things get sewn up in, I think, pretty typical teen comedy fashion. We have the big showdown, the coronation, everything ends up all right, and then... Exclamation point, there's a big food fight.
0: The fun Josie Cotton performance here.
1: I think, though, what still sets it apart is the way it maintains its tone, even as their limo hits the freeway. She's exhibiting this bright curiosity and confidence at the prospect of heading to the hotel suite with him, and he's a little sheepish and happy to be in her presence again. Now, how do you feel about the idea that this is apparently what she wanted all along, but just didn't know how to get there. This idea that if Randy hadn't initiated all this, she would likely be in this limo on her way to the hotel with Tommy. Is her confusion in all this reasonable?
0: I think she's let herself down, and then therefore the audience, by making this dumb choice, and not really feeling it the whole time. She's got a man up, she's got a woman up here, and be better than herself, to go in the right direction. So for conflict's sake, that's why we have it. But I could have just used, yeah, let's go ahead straight to the motel room and just had nothing but up, up, up.
1: Conflict is the essence of drama.
0: Though. I guess so. Oh, bloody but unbowed. I meant to <laughs> say that earlier. A little Shakespeare for you. I do love that as he takes her away, she's smiling and she's still smiling in the limo. This just feels so incredibly positive to me. I love ending on that note. So we've talked about this a bit as we've gone, this kind of guerrilla nature of the production. The smaller budget, the short shooting schedule, spending all this time together. The actors mentioned they had no dressing room, so they got dressed together on location, including on a dirt floor at the Central Club, along with the band. And that reminds me kind of a bit of Smithereens by Susan Seidelman, which we've discussed uh, in brief on the podcast and also in a bonus episode. And then just in general, that leads me to this concept of women directors around this time, you already mentioned Fast Times at Ridgemont High, that was an Amy Heckerling film. But even the huge financial success of Valley Girl compared to its budget and the success of Fast Times at Ridgemont High, it didn't open up the gates for female directors even though they were cheaper to pay. Even with Martha Coolidge's success with Real Genius after this, I have this crazy anecdote that I wanted to share with you. Okay. So she became, in 2002, the first woman elected president of the Directors Guild of America throughout its 66-year history. First woman. She had been told that back in the 60s, the president at the time would address the membership Good Evening Fellow Directors and Mrs. Lupino, she had been told throughout her career, starting back at NYU, that she couldn't be a woman director because there weren't any. And she started off in documentaries because there was lack of money. She had an issue with a screenwriting teacher, and she just felt like documentaries were a great way to tell the stories that she wanted to tell. Have you seen any of these three? She has David off and On from 1972, which is about her brother's experience as a drug addict. She's got an old fashioned woman from 74 when she interviews her grandmother. And then I think kind of the biggest one, not a pretty picture from 75. She tries to come to terms with having been raped in high school and she casts actors to play herself at 16, her friends and the rapist. And she has filmed the rehearsal process and stops things to talk with the actors. It sounds pretty amazing.
1: No, unfortunately, I haven't seen any of those, but you just shot them to the top of my list, for sure. All my favorite teen comedies in the 80s were either made by women or Savage Steve Holland, basically. John Hughes never did it for me. I saw all of those at the time. They were ubiquitous, but there was something about those that made me feel like I was constantly being sold to. Felt gross. They weren't trying to tell me anything about being a teen that I could relate to, and it reminds me a little bit of Thomas Doherty's definition of the teen movie. I'm paraphrasing here, but it's where the decline of classic Hollywood and the rise of the privileged American teenager intersect. And I am leaning heavily on the privileged American teenager part of that equation when I'm talking about John Hughes. It felt like a bunch of broad archetypes meant to appeal to the largest cross-section of the demographic that had the most amount of disposable income. That's how those movies felt and still feel to me. He was a canny marketer, more than a filmmaker. Now, you compare that to what Martha Coolidge and someone like Amy Heckerling are doing, and there's just no comparison. Valley Girl and Fast Times at Ridgemont High are still funny and simultaneously very deeply rooted in what it means to be a real teenager, but there's an honesty and especially a vulnerability in these that all those other films lack.
0: So when are we going to get Valley Girl in the Criterion Collection?
1: I would love to see that. I think it's a cultural touchstone. It makes me think of another question for you, though. What might be keeping it from that? Do you recall perceiving this as a girl's film, quote-unquote, at the time?
0: I don't think I did. I don't think it occurred to me in those terms.
1: It didn't occur to me either. And I think Coolidge is a genius with centering her films on women and their experiences in a way that doesn't alienate. The kind of dumos that think they don't want to see a film about those things.
0: Unless there are eight breaths in it. <laughs> well, going back to the question at the very beginning, or something I mentioned at the very beginning of the episode, was this viewing as much fun as our viewing at AFS with that audience that ended up being so special?
1: You know me. Nothing compares to the theater experience. I missed out on that in 1983. I saw this on VHS back then. But a good audience, it just makes all the difference in the world. When we went to that screening of this, it was completely packed, like you said. And I think the split was pretty close to 50-50 men-women, maybe edging toward women a little bit. But everyone was just there because they love this movie. And so it's such a great environment to see it in. It makes such a difference. Listening to modern English in the theater was really great. We always stay until the lights come up, regardless of the film. But this is a really great credits-watching experience. You get to sit there and revel in being young and in love. It was so fun.
0: Yeah, that was the kind of night that you can't recreate. I'm so grateful that we got to see it that way, even though with those special circumstances aside, I still watch this film with a great big smile on my face. It has such a warm spot in my heart. I don't think that's ever going to go away.
1: Well, do you also have a warm spot in your heart for a recommendation for us?
0: I totally do, dude. And in honor of the third installment coming out in August of this year, I chose Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure from 1989, directed by Stephen Herrick with Keanu Reeves, Alex Winter, and George Carlin. It's about some San Dimas dudes who travel through time to gather major historical figures for this big high school presentation. Because if they don't finish high school, there will be major negative consequences for all of humanity. It's not historically accurate, but who cares? Even Joan of Arc wants to go to the mall. It's super fun and ridiculous, and I'm delighted they've made another one and I plan to watch it. What did you
1: pick? I picked another Martha Coolidge, Real Genius from 1985. That stars Val Kilmer, Gabriel Jarrett, Michelle Mayrink again, William Atherton, Robert Prescott and John Grice. Deborah Foreman pops up in it again too. It's about a science whiz who's the new kid on campus and gets paired up with a freewheeling upperclassman to unwittingly work on a weapon for the military and a lot of brainy hijinks ensue. If Valley Girl is your Martha Coolidge movie, this is my Martha Coolidge movie. Finally, after enduring years of teen comedies that were about the dumb kids They made one populated almost exclusively by the smart kids. I was home. I love that it works within the time-tested bounds of campus comedy, but like Valley Girl, Coolidge bends those to her own ends a little bit. Casting Val Kilmer was a bit of genius, no pun intended, because it really capitalizes perfectly on that part of his personality that borders on arrogance but is fully justified by the intellect that backs it up. I fell in love with Michelle Mayrink, obviously, and all of her brainy quirks. And it even has a high IQ twist on the campus classic food fight finale when they turn William Atherton's house into the world's largest jiffy pop container. They made popcorn for three months to fill up that house, by the way. Pay tribute to their popping dedication and watch this movie.
0: So once again, that's two great recommendations. Bill and Ted's excellent adventure and real genius.
1: And that brings us to the end of episode 134. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We're on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Laura Cannon and the Fatal Films Podcast, the fine gentleman at FUDS on Film, Archie Hanna, Michael Cannon, and Keith Rich. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcast, you can find us. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material at the website, magiclanternpodcast.com.
0: And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast.